Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Trainer Talks and Tales. I'm Daisy. And I'm Tess. We hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Dean. We have another great episode for everyone this week. But firstly, Daisy... How was your week? My week was good, thank you. We've been doing a few trainer exchanges at work recently, so we actually had two of the girls come up from SeaWorld for the day. I really enjoy doing this. It's so fun to exchange ideas, knowledge, and we're also getting to build some really great new friendships too. Now, I don't actually have a recommendation this week, however, Jess and I finally caught up for a wine and we're able to debrief about all of our notes that we took at the recent ASAK conference. And I actually wanted to share my favorite mentoring quote by Bob Proctor that came out of a presentation with Tim Sullivan. And that quote is, a mentor is someone who sees more talent ability within you than you see in yourself and helps bring it out of you. I really resonate with that and I think it's a great little quote. Yeah, I like that. But that's definitely enough from me, Tess. Please tell me all about your week. It was very good and very busy. I cannot believe it's Thursday, but I'm very glad it is. And I'm looking forward to a two-week holiday that's coming up. But don't worry, everybody. I'll be Zooming in next week. So you'll still have an episode to listen to. But today's podcast guest is actually my boss. Uh, Frank is currently the curator at Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary in Brisbane. And I'm actually really excited for this chat. Frank has done a lot of cool stuff from raptor rehabilitation to jumping on crocodiles with Steve Irwin. And yet my favorite thing about him is how humble he is. I've known Frank for 10 years, so I'm particularly excited. So let's get into it. Well, Frank, thank you so much for your time today. Um, Before we start any conversations, you might have heard on our previous podcast that we like to get straight into our fast five. So this is just five questions that aren't necessarily animal related, but just get you thinking. You cool if we get straight into that? Get into it. All right. Seinfeld or friends? Friends. Crocodiles or raptors? Raptors. Summer or winter? Summer. Mars or Snickers? Mars. Camping or five-star hotel? Camping. (laughs) I feel like I guessed all of those for you. (laughs) I love starting the podcast with that. It's just a fun way to break the ice. But Frank, thank you again so much for coming on. You have had a hugely impressive career within the industry. Are you able to take us back, though, to your very first animal job? Sure. It was a while ago. Uh, 23 years now. Um, First animal job was at Australia Zoo on the Sunshine Coast, not far from home. Uh, just working with some birds. Got into that after doing volunteer work from university course. So I was I was studying. I actually wanted to be a park ranger, to be honest, um, and was doing the course to do that. And part of that course was volunteering and did some of that at Australia Zoo. And it just happened that 
the day after I graduated, the director rang and said, hey, we're looking for someone to fill a role. Um, it wasn't with animals at the time. It was just um, planting trees and building fake rocks, you know, all your dreams in one job. Um, but it, it's a foot in the door. So I took it uh, and that's where it all began. Yeah. 23 years later, still in the industry, still loving it. You know, best job in the world. Is that why you're so good at mock rocking? <laughs> I wouldn't say good, but I can do it. Okay, so you started there and uh, then you progressed to Lone Pine. Can you go a little bit further into detail what you've been doing the last few years? Yeah, look, I, I stayed with Ozzy for uh, eight years. Um, you know, I did a lot of work with them, uh, bird shows, raptors, bird keeping, just anything and everything up there. Um then headed to South Australia for a little bit to do some wombat rescue, uh, birds of prey re rehabilitation, um, which was exciting. And the last 10 years now has been at uh, Lone Pond or at Fidry Pocket in Brisbane, uh, starting as a just a keeper and then, you know, slowly making my way to where I am now, which is wildlife curator. Yeah, I feel like it's incredibly inspirational that you've been able to progress from a zookeeping role to now being the curator. What would you put your career success down to? Uh, hard work, you know, just getting in and getting the job done. Um, you know, opportunity, take the opportunities when they arise. Um, and I think, you know, from from my career path, it's only been a couple of steps, um, but it, it's really all just come down to you know making sure that when you're doing a role you're doing it to the best of your ability um and you're you open with your communication about what you're doing and how you're doing it and and just doing the best you possibly can i remember once someone telling me when i got into a keeper role to remember the feeling of when you were a volunteer and how passionate how driven you were and to keep that sort of mindset throughout your career and you'll do really well so it's it's clear that that's definitely stuck with you throughout your career yeah, yeah. That's it. And it doesn't really matter what job you end up with. So long as you do it with passion, that's what's going to drive you in the right direction. And I've always, from a little kid, had an interest in birds and in particular raptors. Um, and you know, when you realise that you can turn that into a job, it doesn't become a job. You know, It's it's just fun going to work every day. You, know, you rarely call in sick you know, because it's it's just a good time going to work, doing the things you love, you know, so... Yeah, I love it. Quite frank on that because that's mic drop that. <laughs> absolutely agree. Um, so do you have any other tips for people listening that may have had the aspiration to become a curator? Yeah, look, I I think it it all just comes down to one thing. You got to you got to be in it to win it, um, and you you got to make yourself known. And the way you you do that, you know, in my eyes, is by you know doing the role that you're asked for, doing to 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 your best of your ability. Um, and just making yourself available. I think, you know, one thing that I, I struggle with at the moment as a, as a curator is not managing animals. You know, animals are relatively easy to manage. You know, I'll deal with 100 crocodiles every day of the year. <laughs> but dealing with staff and, and people's motivations and people's drivers is a different kettle of fish. Um, and it really has recently come down to generational gaps, you know, yeah. and, and the motivation behind the younger generation is different you know, to, to the motivation that I started with, which was you, you get into a role and you want to impress the people that are, you know, making the decisions. And that helps you drive forwards in that career. And it's it's certainly back in my day, it wasn't expected that you just move up a ladder. You know, you had to you had to work for it and you had to really 
put in the hard yards to be there to stand out. Absolutely. And I guess for people who might not be aware, what does like a curator role look like? What are your responsibilities within that role? For myself, I try to keep uh, very hands-on with my animals uh, and the animals in the down there at Lone Pine. Um, I mean, Tess can attest to this. I just kind of hang around raptors quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I have heard that. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. But, um, but it's it's because that's what I love love to do. You know, I'm not a person that's stuck behind a computer, and you can really drive that if you if you want to. You know, you can you can be a curator from behind a desk um, and just manage the collection from there. You know, and that can be anything from you know, making sure that all the permits are up to date, all your, you know, management plans are sorted, you know, what what species you're moving towards, in designing enclosures, you know, organising maintenance of current enclosures, all that, all that kind of stuff um, can be done from behind a computer, but it can also be done from out there in the field as well, you know, and I think getting out and being visible in the park is really important. I had a couple of really inspirational and motivational people to work under um, and, kind of mimicking from their behaviour is, you know, in, in this role that I'm in now is to get out and do the work, not just, you know, ask for the work to get done as well. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I think that is really important. I think the fact that we as keepers see you out there and when you say that you work hard, you work very hard. You work very, very hard and that's very obvious. And I think that does inspire others to do the same. So, yeah, I would agree completely. Yeah, Absolutely. And now it's pretty obvious that you have an incredible repertoire of animals that you've worked with, including wombats, raptors and crocodiles. And I guess speaking of crocodiles, you've been on a few croc trips up to the Steve Irwin Wildlife Reserve, uh, sometimes even with Steve himself. But definitely before we unpack that part, what is it be what has it been like being part of a wild crocodile research program? Oh, it's amazing. You know, not only is the work exciting, um, you know, it's in a completely different location. It's in one of the best places in the world, tropical North Queensland. Um, and you're dealing with uh, a dinosaur, you know, an animal that's been around for 240 million years. It, um, it's an experience. But on the other side, the data that you get out of the out of those trips just blows your mind. Like every day I, I talk to people around the park about, um, you know, the research that was done and, and the, the information that we were getting out of it. I use it in daily crocodile presentations and every time I say it you know the hairs stand up on your arm because it just it, it just drives such passion in in crocodile conservation you know it's the it's a different work environment up there like you, you're dealing with wild crocodiles um in their native natural environment so they're they're doing the things that they've done for millions of years um and you're we're catching them putting transmitters on them and and just studying their their movements around the environment. And yeah, the, the data is amazing. It's, you know, it really does um, open your eyes as to how important they are in our environment and, you know, the role that we need to take as people to to make sure that they stay around for for millions of more years. You know, but when you're on there up there on the trip, like it's it's not easy. It's not a holiday. You're not staying in a hotel. You know, it, it's a little bit cushier now. But, you know, we started with just swags and, you know, having to go catch fish and, and feed ourselves. But the mateship and the camaraderie of the group that are up there uh, is second to none, you know, because you, you're you working with these animals that are quite dangerous and you're working very closely to them and you're putting your life in the hands of those beside you. So if you don't have that that mateship and that camaraderie, 
um, it just doesn't work, you know. So it, it really does build a strong and solid team. And I was just fortunate enough to to pretty much fall into it, into that role with Steve and his Australia Zoo Crocodile Rescue Unit, you know, and they're, they're lifelong friendships that come from that. Yeah, that's incredible. That is so cool. That would have been amazing. From what you've told me in the past that he was pretty hardworking, what was he like to work with? Yeah, exactly that. Like he he led the team from the front, you know. He, to be honest, like I never saw him sleep. You never saw him not doing anything on croc trips. He was always the first one up, the last one to bed, supposedly, but who knows? Um, you know, he was full of energy all the time. And what you saw on TV was what he was like real life, you know, always going at something. Um, and as a person to work for, he was really quite easy to work for because you knew what was expected and that was your absolute best. You do your best he'll be happy, you know, and he wouldn't be shy in, in getting out there and doing the hard work with you, driving the bobcats, moving the heavy plants, you know, doing all the stuff um, with his team. And, you know, it was really kind of motivational. I think one thing that that Steve did for his team, which, you know, I haven't come across anywhere else, is that it didn't matter who you were. Like I started there as, you know, as a, as a little tiny kid straight out of uni. But as soon as you walk into Australia Zoo as a worker there in his presence, you felt 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You know, <laughs> that's that's just the kind of, you know, a, a person that he was for that team. He really was a huge persona and, you know, it, yeah, a, a great person to work for. Absolutely loved it. How long was it exactly that you worked alongside him for that whole eight years? Uh, well, I was at the park for eight years. Um, I did leave the park uh about a year or so after he passed you know and that was just a, a a change in venue that was needed you know i don't know what would change if things were different you know yeah that'd definitely be interesting so carrying on speaking about steve we have a couple of questions from the listeners and the first one is relevant to that so as a leader we'd love to know what you learned from steve that you still carry on with yourself today um yeah it's a good question i think you know we, we kind of touched on it already a little bit and that is just even though I'm in a role where you know I'm leading the team it's it's important to get out there and and do the work and that's what Steve did like from sun up to sundown he was rarely sitting at a desk doing anything it was out there doing the hard yards with the team um and that really helped to to drive the team in in a good direction um you know one thing I did learn from him is a you know he said to me one day he goes you know, you never, never ask anyone to do a job that you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah. And I carry that really highly and it's it's how I operate day to day. You know, if, if I need someone to do a job and I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't get them to do it. That's just fair, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I see that. I see you like dig horrendously big holes <laughs> and you're doing it with someone else because that would be a pretty tough job to do solo. So yeah, makes sense. While still managing a <laughs> whole lot of people and a wildlife collection as well. I definitely yeah. appreciate, you know, the managers being present on the floor. I think it builds a really, a really special connection with their team and a bit of an admiration for that particular person too. Absolutely. Yeah, most certainly. I really, I, I love it. Like I said, I don't, I don't like spending time behind the computer. You know, I've, I have the office there, but the door's rarely closed. Like it's always <laughs> pretty much always open. And I, I do really enjoy getting out and working with the team to 
to pro progress the park forwards. You know, there's, there, obviously there's those jobs that you can't get away from as a curator. You've got to do your permit updates and your permit amendments and, and you got to deal with, you know, reports and all this kind of stuff. But um, like I said, dealing with animals is is a lot easier than dealing with people. And I, <laughs> you know, I'm lucky enough that at Lone Pine we've, we've kind of got someone in that role that tends to deal more with the people. Um, so I'm kind of left alone on that front a little bit that's Which very good <laughs> means more crocodile time more raptor time you know more time with with other animals as well okay well we had another question uh within work what is the hardest thing you've had to overcome and how did you do it that's an interesting one because I, I have been thinking about this one a little bit um you know there's there's two scenarios which really jump out at me here one one is based with animals and animal training and conditioning uh and one is based around people um you know so the one that i think was the hardest was dealing with a change in how we decided to train the birds for the bird show um, that i was working on and you know we we had come from a space where we had been taught how to to train these animals in a certain way and you know it worked sure we had we had birds flying around and doing bits and pieces here and there um but then i went on a, a bit of a, a work trip and bumped into a fellow called matthew kettle and he really I just watched what his his bird show was like down at taronga and how they managed their birds and just how they dealt with the day-to-day -day, the ins and outs of getting a, a free flight of bird show to operate and it was amazing like it was so different to what we were doing and you know at that stage i was kind of like we can do better you know, we can do better not only by us, but more importantly, we can do better by the birds. And that was the biggest driving factor. And to be honest, the second I got on that plane to come home from that trip was the second I decided that we're doing it different, which is great. But the problem was we had to relearn everything. You know, the, the things that we had to overcome were, um, you know, expectation by our managers at the time, because obviously we had a, a perfectly functional bird show. And here we wanted to go, all right, it could go a little crazy for a while because we're going to reshape all of these behaviours and we're going to do it with different motivators and different drivers. So you're going to see it fall apart briefly, and which it did. You know, we, we went through about a month where the birds were just going, what's going on? We came out the other side, you know, at a million miles an hour. Um, you know, it was probably one of the best decisions that, you know, I ever made as a, as a bird show manager. And, you know, it's really open an eye to the future and i love i love that side of of being a zookeeper with looking after the animals and getting to know them individually particularly if you're working you know so closely with them training and conditioning behaviors like you really develop those rapports with those animals but then also looking to the future and going well what what can we do more of you know how can we improve the day-to-day -day lives of, of these birds that we're using and you know tess can also speak to this a little bit with looking outside the box to these animals fly and behave like they would if they're in the wild. And the peregrine falcons are a great example where you can use technology to help you recreate those behaviours that, you know, they usually wouldn't get to display. So I guess realising that the way we were doing things wasn't quite right and then making that decision to change and then following through with that decision and coming out the other side was the adversity that got faced was well worth it. 
you know, don't get me wrong. There was some, there's plenty of things we learned in that first stage that were, that were, you know, I still carry today. And that's confidence in being able to let the birds go. As in all learning instances, you take some stuff and you leave other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that relates really nicely to one of my favorite quotes, which is we do what we know until we know better, which sounds very relevant to what you've just spoken about. Yeah. Now that sums it up in way less words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> okay. So Tess has told me that your email is Falcon Frank, which she is <laughs> laughing at, but I think it is a little bit rich coming from her Katsukul with a Z email address. Exactly. She really uses today. Thank you for anyway, bringing that up. Yeah. You're, you're very welcome. Um, oh, so this leads really well into the final question that we got um, through to ask you. It's and so silly. Is a, and it's a Falcon edition of Kiss, Marry and Kill. But, however, we have slightly adapted it. So your three species are peregrine falcon, a grey falcon and a kestrel. And we want to know which one you want to work with every day, maybe just one more day and never again. <laughs> I would say peregrine falcons every day. <laughs> They're just fantastic. Like, holy moly, you can't. Fantastic. They just amaze me every time they fly. And and I'll s- sit there watching Tess swing a lure around or do whatever it is on the stage. And, you know, as they're flying over the top of my head after I've let them out, you know, having a chat to them, go, come on, you can go get her. Go on. Um, and just their flight is, is you know, just captiv- captivates me every time. doesn't matter. I've, like, I've watched them in the wild since I was a kid for, you know, 30-odd years, 35 years, but every time you see one, it's just holy moly. It's the fastest animal on the planet. Um, okay, so definitely once, a peregrine falcon every day. <laughs> yeah, what once would be a grey falcon, I guess, because you know, they're not too different from the peregrine, but you know, I, I haven't even seen one in the wild. So you know, it's one of two raptors that I haven't seen um, in the wild yet in Australia, that and the, the letterwing kite. Um, so I've got, I've got to go and find one first before I can work with it. Um, and if we're, if we're going to like out of those three, never again would be a Kestrel. Like as much as I love them and they're my, they're my all time favorite Raptor. Um, you know, they're a little Falcon. They think they're as big as an Eagle. They're bold. They're, they're tenacious. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they just go and get what they want. They don't care how big it is that they're going to get. Like they're it amazing. Like my sausage <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of little bird syndrome or little little <laughs> falcon syndrome, um, you know. But man, they're hard work. Like they're just they're just so they can be aloof. And the, the couple that I've worked with, they just tend to take off and go and do their own thing for a long time. <laughs> Doesn't bode so, well for a bird show. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, not one that needs to finish in fifteen minutes. Yeah. <laughs> True. Um, you've got days. I'm going to chuck in one more question for you. You told us what it was like to work with Steve. I want to know what it's like to work with Tess. Yeah. <laughs> Rough. Well, have you got some time? Oh, God. No, it, it's great. You know, I think on a whole, one thing that I really enjoy about my role at the moment is flexibility because the flexibility gives me time to go and spend with, you know, Tess and the Raptor crew or or, you know, our, our crocodile department or, um, you know, people working with wombats because I, I love nothing more than sharing experience and sharing knowledge about how 
you know, we can work with these animals, how we can do things and, and how we can look into the future to do things better. Um, you know, and, and to be honest, Tess is very, you know, flexible when it comes to you know, some of the suggestions that I make. Um, you know, she's always, I she, she listens be. and then she comes back and goes, yeah, maybe not. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we have a great working relationship and, yeah, it, it's great. Love working with Tess. Oh, thanks, Greg. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I know I get to work with you every day and it's a, been a pleasure chatting with you, Frank, uh, and we're both very appreciative of your time. Uh, you're not big on socials, but is there anywhere people can reach you? Falcon Frank at hotmail.com? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what they are on my Instagram. and. No, no, I know. It's fine. Um, people could just email you at frank at koala.net. That's perfect. Yeah, thought so. That'll work. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. No worries at all. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> well, guys, that's it for today's episode. I really enjoyed learning a little bit more about Frank and hope you did too. Remember to jump on our socials if you have any questions or guest requests. We love hearing from you. See you next week. Bye.